A series of campus protests erupts across the United States. The University of Missouri, Amherst, Dartmouth, Ithaca, Yale, and many other campuses where the instigating issue is protesters' assertion that their schools are ignoring their complaints of discrimination against minorities. Before long, however, there is a backlash against the protesters themselves with critics accusing them and their allies of seeking to silence those whose views and statements they find offensive. This accusation is not exactly new. Like the charge of discrimination itself, it has been raised many times over many years, but the recent protests have brought this question back into the foreground. So let's have that debate. Yes or no to this statement, free speech is threatened on campus. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are on the campus of Yale University with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion, free speech is threatened on campus. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at Yale will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. First, please, let's meet our team debating. The team arguing for the motion, free speech is threatened on campus. Please, let's welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Kaminer. And Wendy Kaminer, you're a writer, you're a lawyer, you're a civil libertarian, you've published eight books, you've written a lot about this topic, Uh, but to give the audience an idea of where you're coming from on the issues, in in response to the assertion that is sometimes made that harassment really is about making someone uncomfortable, you have declared yourself a harasser uh, because you say, quote, you strive to make at least a few people uncomfortable every day. Um, Does that mean we're going to be in for an uncomfortable night with you? Well, I hope to make people a little bit uncomfortable because ideological comfort is not so different from ideological complacency. We are, however, on the radio, and that will keep me in bounds. Okay, so there are some limits. Ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Kaminer. And Wendy, please tell us, who is your partner? My partner is the judicious Professor John McWhorter of Columbia University. Ladies and gentlemen, John McWhorter. John, you're a professor of linguistics at Columbia, also the author of several books, mostly focused on language, but you are also well-known over the years for your commentary on race and culture. That writing some have described as quite controversial, but we want to ask you, is there a shift in tone when you're writing about linguistics and when you're writing about race and culture? Actually, it doesn't get around as much, but I am as unpopular in some linguistic circles, (laughs) and so I guess I'm an equal opportunity controversialist. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, John McWhorter and the team arguing for the motion. And that motion again, free speech is threatened on campus. We have two debaters arguing against it. Please welcome Sean Harper. Um, Sean, you're a professor in the Graduate School of Education and executive director of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. That center does interdisciplinary research on issues of race and education, but it also acts as a consultant for other campuses. And considering recent events, we're wondering how often have other campuses recently reached out for your consulting? This uh, past December, we brought together 8,000 college presidents, and other senior leaders who came to us for guidance on how to respond to racism on their campuses. 8,000. All right. Well, certainly shows there's interest in there. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Harper. And Sean, your partner is? The brilliant Yale University professor, Jason Stanley. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Stanley. 
You've written uh, four books, most recently uh, one on social and political philosophy called How Propaganda Works. Um, and you do teach philosophy here at Yale, where, as we've said, student protests have captivated the media. We are not going to be debating the facts of what happened at Yale, but we do want to ask you, what was one thing you think that the media got wrong? Well, the media narrative is that our student movement was caused by an email. But to me, that's like saying that the French Revolution was caused by a comment by Marie Antoinette. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion, free speech is threatened on campus. Now, this is a contest. It's a debate. The way that we work this is we have the audience vote twice, once before it has heard the arguments, and once again after. And the way we declare victory is the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second vote in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. On to round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. And here to speak first for the motion, free speech is threatened on campus. I want to welcome to the lectern Wendy Kaminer. She is a member of the Massachusetts State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission and advisor to the Foundation for Individual Rights in education. Ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Kaminer. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here, and I want to acknowledge at the outset that we are all here tonight debating free speech because it is still valued on campus. But it is also true that we are debating free speech because its values are under siege. At the University of South Carolina, students have been investigated for discrimination for advocating free speech. At a California college, students had to go to court to vindicate the right to distribute copies of the Constitution on Constitution Day. These are not anomalous cases. They are typical. Campus speech codes date back decades. This is not a new debate, but it has intensified in recent years partly in response to guidelines issued by the U.S. Department of Education. Title IX requires all colleges and universities receiving federal funds, which is basically all of them, to restrict verbal harassment, especially sexual harassment, and allegedly hostile environments. The trouble is that the administration defined harassment so broadly that it may consist of nothing more than speech of a sexual nature considered unwelcome by some students. Title IX has been turned into an ad hoc national campus speech code, as the investigation of Northwestern Professor Laura Kipnis has shown. Kipnis was investigated after publishing an article on sexual politics in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. She's a tenured professor who vigorously challenged the investigation and debunked it in a scathing expose, and she escaped punishment. But it's easy to imagine the effect of this on untenured junior faculty. How did this regime evolve? It is partly a response to concern about free speech on campuses, struggling with diversity and the problem of sexual violence. It is practically axiomatic on many campuses that speech considered hateful to disadvantaged or vulnerable students is a form of discrimination or even violence. Whenever people want to restrict speech, they call it verbal conduct. But free speech can't consist simply of, of what people don't mind hearing said. But words are weapons, advocates of restricting hate speech like to say, and I agree. That's precisely why we protect them. Weaponized speech 
is the ideal form of nonviolent political combat. It is especially important to people in positions of relative powerlessness. It has fueled virtually every movement for social change and social justice, including today's student protest movements, which you might point to as evidence that free speech is thriving on campus. The trouble is that so many of these movements aim to punish and suppress other people's speech by labeling them microaggressions, forms of discrimination, again, it's called verbal conduct, or even likening it to violence. But when you confuse the metaphoric power of allegedly hateful speech with actual violence, you risk justifying the use of violence in response to speech. And I hope you'll agree that that is not a good thing. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy Kaminer. The motion is free speech is threatened on campus. And here to speak against the motion, Jason Stanley. He is the Jacob Urofsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, author of the book How Propaganda Works. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Stanley. Wendy, I'm afraid I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with you. Free speech is alive and well in America's universities, as you will see if you walk around this campus. I teach here, as do David Brooks, Stan McChrystal, and people of all different political persuasions. I have debated the Yale Political Union in the past year. So has John Ashcroft and Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. I'm a philosopher, so I'm going to begin where my tribe often begins, with Aristotle. In book one of The Politics, Aristotle says that the gift of speech is given to us to lay, to lay out the expedient from the in- inexpedient, the just from the unjust. And these lines are extremely relevant to our current debate. Contemporary students stand accused by some of violating the liberal ideal of free speech. In fact, many students are using the gift of speech as we Western philosophers were taught it was meant to lay out the inexpedient and unjust. As Mark Lamont Hill said on ABC back in November, August 9th, 2014, started everything right after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. We see protests all around the country. And these young people haven't stopped protesting. They haven't stopped talking, and so we're raising other issues. We must consider that it is actually the ones who criticize these students for being cry bullies who are the threats to free speech. Some cast today's campus climate as a tension between anti-racism and free speech. This is a false dichotomy. We must consider the possibility that what what is really happening is that the language of free speech has been co-opted by dominant social groups, distorted to serve their interests, and used to silence the marginalized. All too often, when people cry for justice and are represented as threats to free speech, what is really meant is just be quiet. Exercising free speech to urge someone not to say or do racist things is not the denial of the right to say racist things. Many of us believe racist statements are false. So when we call a statement racist, what we're doing is we're we're putting into question a perceived falsehood. And how could that be in tension with the mission of the university, which is the pursuit of truth? 
When I hear that student protests are silencing and intimidating people, I scratch my head. Students are advocating for open political discussion, sometimes heated, and justice for all. That is what we philosophers were taught freedom of speech is. As a philosopher, it is especially fitting that we debate this topic in a forum much like the one envisaged by Aristotle. The resolve is free speech is threatened on campus. Our very gathering tonight proves it is not. Thank you. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. The next topic up for debate, are you for or against building your own website? Building a website can be tough. Even if you do know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair. Lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed, regardless of skill level. No coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust in them too. When you really think twice about it, you can't beat the ease and simplicity. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Make sure to use the offer code intelligence to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Intelligence Squared U.S. debates. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, free speech is threatened on campus. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern John McWhorter. He is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University, author of The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language. Please welcome John McWhorter. Thank you very much. In terms of the protests that we're seeing, there are many valuable points. If I had been an undergraduate at Princeton, I would always have been appalled, whether or not anybody told me to be appalled, at Woodrow Wilson being emblazoned on buildings. I completely get that. If there is a culture that would allow someone to say that only white women are allowed at a fraternity party, well, that should be shouted to the heavens, most certainly. And furthermore, the idea that we're ever going to have perfectly free speech on a campus is ridiculous. That is boilerplate for editorials because no college campus worth the name would have completely free speech. We're not going to have a debate about whether or not genocide is okay. We're not going to have a debate about whether or not slavery is okay. Those things are not subject to free speech. We're going to let those things alone. They're things that one must let pass. Our problem today is that many of the things that we're being told we shouldn't even discuss and that the mere discussion of it constitutes a space becoming unsafe are really things which, in an intelligent and moral environment, people will reasonably have discussions about. So, for example, does affirmative action continue forever, and for what reason? One can debate. There are various places it might go. To bring it up, however, does not make somebody an immoral person. What is cultural appropriation? What is the line between cultural appropriation and cultural mixture? That's a tough one. It's subtle. It's worth debate. 
What we're dealing with is a general argument, which indeed has become higher pitched since Ferguson, in favor of a leftist position, and I'm glad. However, what we're too often being told is that the leftist position is truth incarnate, and that on that position, if on no other one, there can be no further debate. And that's problematic. It's problematic on a campus, for example, because it's fundamentally anti-intellectual. Safe space is not an argument simply because both words begin with S. The word justice is not an argument. Justice is very complicated, as Aristotle told us very well. We have to be careful how we use language and understand that these things are not, as one might say, black and white. I'm afraid that what we're seeing on one campus after another is an idea that shaming people and shutting them down via the ample use of buzzwords and slogans and sonorous cadence is somehow okay when it comes to espousing a leftist agenda. It's as if we're at the end of ideas. Free speech is being threatened on college campuses. I think you should think so as well. Thank you. Thank you, John McWhorter. And that is our motion. Free speech is threatened on campus. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Sean Harper, a professor in the Graduate School of Education, Africana Studies, and Gender Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Harper. I recently spoke at a large, predominantly white university where I met Damien, a black undergraduate man who shared with me a disturbing story. Damien was the only non-white person in a large 200-person lecture-style engineering course. At the beginning of one class session, the professor told seven students who had received perfect scores on a previous test that they were excused from class and exempt from the remaining exams in the sequence, which was a really generous deal, right? And according to Damien, they had to walk past the professor's podium to get out the classroom door. Six of them exited the lecture hall uninterrupted. It was only the seventh, Damien, the only black student in the class, who was stopped by the professor who said to him, wait, you got 100%? In a tone of shock and disbelief. Damien was embarrassed. He was hurt. But he said nothing to his professor. Proponents of the motion we are debating tonight would likely argue that maybe Damien was being too sensitive. Or, for sure, it would have been outrageous had he told the professor that what he did to him in that lecture hall that day felt racist to him. My debate partner, Jason Stanley, and I intend to convince you that it was Damien's, not the professor's, freedom of speech that was suppressed in that moment. What we saw at the University of Missouri, here at Yale, and on dozens of other predominantly white campuses across our nation last fall 
were students of color finally exercising their freedom of speech. Ryan Wilson wrote a beautiful column in the student newspaper here addressing the Halloween costume incident that occurred here last semester. Ryan explains in his column that Yale's Intercultural Affairs Committee sent out an email encouraging students to consider the unintended consequences that wearing certain costumes could have on their peers and on the sense of community. Notice there was no policy that said you can't wear your racist costume. It's just encouraging people to consider the effects of their actions. Jason and I invite our, our opponents to present us more than a handful of written institutional policies where it's been put in writing that you can't say certain things, you can't wear certain costumes. When a person of color says that what you just said to me sounded or felt racist, we're not attempting to shut down the conversation. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. We are inviting you to engage with us. We're inviting you to learn, right? Surely, John and Wendy do not believe that we should send college-educated persons into the world without some understanding of how their speech and actions might unknowingly harm others. Sean Harper, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, free speech is threatened on campus. Now we move on to round two. Round two is a little bit more free form. It's where the debaters take questions from me. They address one another directly, and they will take questions from you. The team arguing for the motion, Wendy Kaminer and John McWhorter, have painted a picture of college campuses where they say speech policing is routine, where only certain ideas are considered to have legitimacy. They do not dispute that some issues are taboo for talking about, teaching about, but that the list has grown. They say that weaponized speech is, in fact, the ideal form of nonviolent combat and that there's an atmosphere on campuses uh, such that it's threatening to junior staff who are up, not tenured and worried about what they're saying, getting them into trouble in terms of their careers. The team arguing f- against the motion that free speech is threatened on campus, Jason Stanley and Sean Harper, they dispute um, almost every assertion that their opponents have made. They say that the episodes of actual censorship, uh, institutional policy are exceedingly rare. They also argue that the impulse to complain about offensive speech is not an impulse to silence, but an attempt to improve the quality of conversation to lay out, they say, the expedient and the unjust. I want to go to Wendy Kaminer first. And um, Jason Stanley laid out the fact that, for example, here at Yale, he went through a long list of invited speakers whom he argues um, quite persuasively represent in themselves a broad range of political diversity. And so his challenge to you is, listen, if Yale or any other university were dedicated to putting forth one point of view, those speakers would never be on campus. So what's your response to that? We're not here arguing absolutes. We're saying that there is free speech on campus. There are also threats to free speech on campus. We've seen a lot of cases of speakers, for example, being disinvited, um, either under pressure from students, disinvited by the administration. Um, Sean, uh, I think, challenged us to come up with... um, Right, he said you only have a handful of instances where there's an institutional policy. About half of the colleges and universities in this country have speech codes that prohibit some form of 
offensive speech. The, the terms are very vague. It's either offensive, derogatory. Sometimes these speech codes refer to jokes. You know, I, Sean, I, I'm sorry that I, I can't name them all off now. There are hundreds of them. There are too many to memorize. All right, let's let Sean... But if you go to the fire.org and do a search for speech codes, you will find them. All right, so Sean, your opponent, Wendy Kaminer, is saying that it's, it's far broader than a handful. Sure. So... They, codes are meant to guide. They're not policies. And furthermore... Oh, no, they are policies. It, it, okay, well, furthermore, these policies, when they're written, they're often intended to not cross the line of hate speech and to not cross the line of persistent harassment. They're not just little silly jokes that, that one could make uh, about someone. That's not what these speech codes are. But that's how they're sometimes enforced. You guys have suggested that we are somehow saying that student protests are violations of free speech. I strongly defend the right of student to protest. The problem is that a lot of these protests are aimed not at trying to convince other people not to use certain kinds of language, but to try to get them punished for using language. Okay, any truth to that? Um, let me bring in Jason Stanley. Um, so, uh, so, so it, is, it is true that campus codes did make, if you look at all the student demands across the country, in the top 13 campus codes, a demand for campus codes was 12th, mentioned by a tiny fraction. Um, but I just want to mention what I think is the underlying issue here, and it's leftism. As usual, the idea that leftism is threatening free speech, this is not a new point. Uh, and the, the claim, the, 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 as a leftist, uh, I, can tell you, I can tell you, Noam Chomsky told me he has never been invited to a political science department to speak, despite his many, many books. It's always tough to be confronted with one's political views. As a leftist, my, my students who are conservative confront me. And it's tough, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm saying, I say, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to not do that agenda, and I go home, and, and I get hate mail for my political views. That's what happens in political debate. Jason, I love the left. <laughs> it's not that the left is wrong. The problem is when the idea seems to be that if you don't agree with a leftist position, then you are ignorant at best and immoral at worst. I'm claiming that that is the new environment. But more to the point, when someone, Sean is told that they're a racist. It is practically equivalent to calling them a pedophile. Therefore, when you call someone a racist, you're effectively silencing all but the bravest people who most enjoy an argument. That's just the point. Call somebody a racist, you've shut them down, and it's happening a lot. Sean Harper. I almost don't know where to begin here. I have, like, way too much. Um, So (laughs) the thing is that... When someone says what you are saying or doing feels racist or sexist or homophobic to me, the person who hears that shuts him or herself down, right? No one's saying that, well, you can't keep talking. Shut up. Like, no, the the person who is being held accountable for saying something hurtful to someone else shuts him or herself down, silences him or herself, right? That, that's what happens, could I just add one quick thing on this? Yes, they're going to get two in a row, uh, but go for it. I think the debate, it, I think it's now clear what the debate is about is not free speech. It's about racism and anti-racism. And free speech really doesn't have anything to do with it. All right, let's go. Let's, let's let the other side respond. Wendy Kaminer. 
we're focusing on racism tonight partly because so many of the recent protests have been anti-racist protests. And I don't think any of us would disagree with you, Sean, about uh, the really bad climate on some campus and about the kind of bias that some students experience. I don't think any of us are saying that's not real. I don't think any of us are saying that's something that shouldn't be protested. But I also want to point out that when we talk about speech being restricted on campus, we're not just talking about speech that's involved in these battles about racism. We're talking about students and faculty being punished for criticizing the administration. We're talking about, you know, people just making stupid jokes. It's coming up a lot in claims about sexual harassment and sexual violence as well. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, free speech is threatened on campus. Sean Harper, um, your opponent, John McWhorter, suggested that you can put together a list of topics that, that more or less would be considered taboo um, and that everybody agrees. But he says there's a, whole, there's a whole area where he would want to push back. And he used the example of can there be in a, a discussion on campus of the effectiveness of affirmative action and continuing affirmative action. He said that, that that's an off-limits topic in his view on campus today. Do you agree with that? Is there something like – would that be considered off-limits for discussion and debate? I, I – disagree with that. There are students on hundreds of campuses who are talking about affirmative action uh, now, like literally, like right now, probably while we're here at this debate, somebody's talking about affirmative action on a campus somewhere. You know, when John said that, I, I, I wrote in my notes here, how do we determine which topics aren't up for debate and who gets to determine? Great question. That John? is agreeing with me. It is a question Whereas you're saying that affirmative action is being talked about, and if I may, Sean, you're pretending that people are just sitting and sipping tea and talking about it, whereas we both know, both of us live on college campuses, that the major tone of the way it's spoken about beyond a certain small and beleaguered feeling rightist circle is that anybody who questions affirmative action in a real way is either ignorant and they need to learn some facts, or if they learn the facts and they still disagree with somebody who is liberal or even further on the left, then they're immoral. Then they want a, a kind of society that would frighten us and words like fascist are tossed around. You're that saying, is a simple truth. There's a groaning bookshelf full of reports of this. There are millions of articles. That is the way it's constructed, and that's okay. so, what Wendy so and I are let, complaining let about. So, so, so as somebody who defends leftist positions and is called a communist, an extremist, you know, uh, irrational, I, I'm used to this. Anyone who, who takes a position on a political issue is sensitive to the insults that are directed against this. This debate is not about free speech. It's about leftism because it's being claimed that the, the slights against conservative positions are somehow more damning and more felt. We all feel them. Our... Jason, uh, imagine the things I've been called. Let's go to some questions now out there. If you could stand up and tell us your name. And get out a tight question, please. Hi, uh, Matt. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, do you think there's a difference between speech made in a social setting without any academic intent, uh, or where the cases that the pro side brought up were uh, tenured professors being censured for comments made in an academic setting? And can we censor or stop or limit one type of speech without affecting uh, the other type of speech? Thanks for your question, Matt. Um, to be sure, 
I don't want anyone's speech to be suppressed in any setting. So even at a fraternity party, you know, if someone says something that sounds a bit off color, I would want one of his fraternity brothers to engage him in a conversation about it. Again, we're on a college campus and fraternities are on college campuses. So I would want this to be a space where even peer teaching and learning and engagement is happening. I'm not saying that, you know, again, we can't talk about things like affirmative action. What I am saying is that if you have a perhaps seemingly unpopular view about affirmative action, don't shut yourself down. Put your position in there. Continue to fiercely debate it. Uh, We're hearing tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that the left feels beleaguered on America's college campuses. (laughs) Just take that in. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, free speech is threatened on campus. And if if you could stand up, then they see where the mic is. Thanks. And it'll come to you. Do you as professors, all of you, honestly feel that there is nothing that you could say that students could then um, call for your resignation and that might end up calling for for you to resign. Is is there a line beyond which professors can be so offensive that it's actually justified for students to demand their resignation and, if possible, get their demand satisfied? Uh, I'm in a field where people argue there's only one thing. So, you know, I'm used to extreme views being debated. My colleague at my former colleague at Rutgers argued that we should extinguish all carnivorous animals. I mean, you know... No, I'm not afraid and never have been. Yeah, I've taught, at three, I've taught at three universities now, and never did someone hand me a, a handbook that says, here's what you can and can't say. Um, you know, honestly, unless something just like really falls into the category of persistent hate speech and persistent harassment, I can't even imagine. I don't, I don't know a colleague. I don't know a person at any of the three places where I've been a professor who's been fired for saying things. Okay, Wendy Kammerer. Uh, um, FIRE has a recent case just out of Louisiana where a teacher... Just, just remind the podcast listeners what FIRE is because uh, it sounds uh, like I'm you're sorry. yelling yes. FIRE uh, in a crowded the theater. Foundation and for <laughs> <laughs> yelling it falsely in a crowded yes, yeah. theater. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which uh, fights for speech rights and due process rights on campus has a, uh, a case coming out of a, a Louisiana State College involving a teacher of longstanding. She's been fired um, or denied promotion because a couple of students in her class objected to what they thought was crude language. She is now suing the state of Louisiana. Students have a right to demand anything they want to demand. But, and, and here's where we have another problem that we haven't discussed. Sean has mentioned hate speech a couple of times. I bet the four of us would have different definitions of hate speech. And that's one of the problems with trying to restrict speech is that it's very hard to come up with objective, narrow standards for speech that should and, and shouldn't be permitted. And what we're seeing on campus now are some very expansive notions of what constitutes something that should be just, you know, out-of-bounds racist speech or sexist speech or homophobic speech. And, and that's the problem with a lot of these speech codes, which okay. are enforced. Let me bring Sean in, and, if, and then I want to go back to questions, Sean. 
Wendy, for the first time tonight, here's where we may find agreement. Um, I bet if we brought together a group of women and a group of men and asked them to make us a list of what characterizes sexism and misogyny, I bet those lists would look very different. So it, it would be wrong of us to say that it would be wrong of us to say that the women are overreacting or that they don't have a right to suggest that you know men understand the boundaries of, of what qualifies as, as, as gender harassment and as sexism. At the edge of the aisle, I'm, yeah, yeah, you just looked over. You're the person. Thanks. All right. Hi. Um, I work as a residential advisor in student dorms, and I feel like that's one of the places where free speech is most important. In my role, I've been asked to take posters off student stores. I've also been asked to report the speech of my residents to supervisors who would then be asked to go into a meeting. I was wondering if all of you could comment on the role of free speech in residential dorms at our universities. I would only say that John what McCorder. you just described is yet another brick in the wall we're building, showing that the sorts of things Wendy's referring to are not just one-offs, that we're talking about a general American climate that demands address, and the climate is one in which free speech is not eliminated, that wasn't the point, is free speech being threatened? Once again, your question has suggested that the answer is yes. Jason Stanley. So uh, I'm not really super qualified to speak about residential dorms. Um, I'm in a field where affirmative, I'm shocked by some of the discussion examples being used because in my field, affirmative action is regularly discussed in applied ethics classes. Um, I mean, my view as a human being is that if I do go back to like my my kitchen or something, and someone still wants to argue with me or, or yell at me, you know, I can reasonably ask them just, you know, I want to play with my four-year-old. But that's not an official position about resident houses and what should be. I'm generally against anything being okay. banned. Sean, I'll come back to Wendy Kaminer and then Sean. I, I was interested in what you said because I think that you mentioned something about being asked to report instances of offensive speech. That is a big problem. We're seeing increasing anonymous reporting. You know, we're sort of at risk of developing a society of student informants. Sean Harper. What we have to keep in mind is that there are tuition-paying, residence hall fee-paying students who all live in the residence halls. So we have to have some care for the full community, not just a handful, right? And again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be able to, you know, put whatever they want to put on their doors, but we at least need to talk about the effects of putting those things on their doors or wherever on the other people who live there, people who may come from marginalized and oppressed groups. That's all. Right down in front here, um, gentleman third in. Hi, thank you. My name is Eli. I'm a senior here at Yale. Um, this profe- this uh, question is directed to Professor Stanley. You mentioned John Ashcroft as one of the people with very diverse views that was invited here, but actually there was a Facebook group to protest his speech and saying he shouldn't be allowed to speak at Yale because his views are so controversial. So is that an example of shining free speech or a threat on free speech? Uh, what a clever the, question. Uh, yeah. Uh, well done. The, the, uh, <laughs> the people, free, free speech allows us to protest can- people coming to campus. That's part of free speech. Yes. Uh, you know, if you yes. restricted Facebook pages like that, you would be against free speech. Yes. 
yes, what he just said. Guys, you're really, you're really misunderstanding the, the point here. If someone says John Ashcroft shouldn't come, that's what we're talking about because an alternate way of doing it, and the way it would have been about 20 years ago, was John Ashcroft would have come, and either he would have been heckled, and we can talk about that, or people would have listened to him to get a sense of the devil, if they thought of it that way. They would have heard somebody they disagreed with and seen how those arguments were made, and then went back to their dorm and did their work. The idea that he's not supposed to come is exactly the kind of threat that we're talking about. Whether or not it happened doesn't matter. You, Wendy? No, it's, of course students have a right to say he's not allowed to come. But to do that shows an intolerance for free speech. It suggests that, and, and you'll hear this kind of language, he shouldn't come because it violates our safe space. He shouldn't come because it's harassing. We had the example of um, a debate about rape culture at Brown University between two feminists which was protested as violating the safety of survivors of sexual assault. And so they established a separate room for people to go to so that they could have some comfort while this debate was going on. You know, they had a right to do that, but it shows an intolerance for free speech. Let me stop you, know, you right there. A desire not to let hear me, opposing let me, views. Let me stop you right there and ask the other side that question, which is why I like the question. Does that reflect an intolerance of free speech? Uh, that specific the p- position reflects an intolerance of free speech, and we don't know how many students were on the Facebook page, but I am a free speech absolutist, and people are really coming dangerously close to asking that no such Facebook pages be made. And I really think for any speaker, students have the right to protest that speaker's coming. Well, that is something we all agree upon. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is free speech is threatened on campus. On to round three. Round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is this. Free speech is threatened on campus. Here making her closing statement supporting the motion, Wendy Kaminer, an author, lawyer, and civil libertarian. We've just been talking about an intolerance for speakers with dissenting views. A few days ago, I spoke to Zachary Wood, who's a Williams College sophomore, who runs the controversial Uncomfortable Learning series. Recently, the president of Williams summarily canceled an appearance by an uncomfortable learning speaker who was charged with making racist remarks. Zachary is an African-American who identifies as a liberal Democrat. He's also a strong, a strong proponent of free speech. He wants to expose himself and other students with dissenting, even obnoxious views. It's a matter, he says, of, of preparing students to articulate differences of opinion. Now people tend to resort to name-calling instead. And in fact, some of the same students who protest the Uncomfortable Learning series as harassing or threatening have vilified Zach as an Uncle Tom and, and targeted him with implicit threats, he reports. Twice he's received notes under his door. A Facebook posting said, we need the oil and the switch to deal with him at this midnight hour. Zach says that he gets private expressions of support from other students who say they don't want to speak out publicly. This is what happens when you demonize expression of unwelcome views. You create communities of frightened conformists. Williams College is not an outlier. 
Zachary Wood is an outlier who practices what many on campus only preach, a consistent commitment to free speech. And so I ask you to recognize Zachary's experience, to recognize the experiences of other students like him, and vote yes on the motion. Thank, Thank you. you. Wendy Kaminer. The motion is free speech is threatened on campus. And here making his closing statement against this motion, Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University. I want to again return to my view of what a university is. It's a place where we replace disputes that usually used to take place or usually do take place on the battlefield with disputes uh, that take place in the classroom. That means that those disputes are going to hurt and they're going to wound and they're going to be personal. uh, And that is what it is to be a university. So when people talk of, of shaming, I mean, it's tough and we have to have we have to have tolerance for each other and we have to understand that this is uh, what political debate is about. Uh, College campuses are not where things are going wrong. I mean, diversity is being discussed everywhere. The Oscars just happened. I mean, am I really understanding what's going on? The college campuses are the only place discussing diversity, yet on college campuses there's some specific problem. Uh, Free speech... Uh, is not threatened by students voicing their concerns about social justice issues, even in strongly emotional terms. It's threatened by calling those people bullies, representing them as as authoritarians and really frightening, and it's threatened by belittling the, the students' ability to tolerate debate, often emotional, often tough, with each other. And I think that's what we see on college campuses today. I've learned from all my students, from all different political perspectives. So I urge you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Jason Stanley. That motion again, free speech is threatened on campus. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, John McWhorter. He's a professor of linguistics at Columbia University. You know what this comes down to? This is a matter of the fact that the format of this debate is such that Wendy and I could not, within the time that we are allotted, give you the crushing weight of episodes such that we could make it clear that there's been a change in atmosphere on college campuses that does threaten, not extinguish, threaten free speech over the past 10 years. We can't do it, but frankly, you guys know most of the data. Now, I want us to watch out for a certain argumentational feint that one sees. The plural of anecdotes isn't data, that really what you've just heard is a few outlying circumstances. No, I want you to make a comparison. If you had heard tonight exactly as many anecdotes about episodes of racism experienced by young black men at the hands of the cops... And that's something that happens. It's real. I write about it all the time. If you had heard about six and a half cases scattered across the country, I think most people in this room would agree that that indicated that racism is alive and well and a serious problem across the United States, which I would not dispute. Well, if that's how you would feel if I talked about Ferguson and Trayvon Martin and names that we don't even need to recite, then you can't say that what's happened here in terms of free speech on campus has just been a smattering of anecdotes. That would be an intolerable inconsistency. Free speech is threatened on today's college campuses. The evidence is clear. You should vote for us. Thank you, John McWhorter. 
And that motion again, free speech is threatened on campus. And here to make his closing statement against this motion, Sean Harper, Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Given the time and limitations of this debate format, I cannot give you the crushing weight of evidence that I have heard from students, thousands of them who have participated in my studies about the experiences that they have on their campuses, not just experiences and encounters with racism, but also with sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, and other forms of harassment and disrespect that target and undermine their humanity and sense of belonging on the campus. I don't have enough time to do that. They're not anecdotes, they're data, they're people's lived experiences and realities. And as it turns out, those people have had enough. They're standing up for themselves. They are finally exercising their freedom of speech. For years and years and years, those people sat silent. Now all of a sudden they're saying, you know what, what you're saying feels racist to me. No one is saying to people, that you cannot say ridiculous things. What they are saying is that you are going to be held accountable for them. We're going to engage you in a conversation about them. And it is your choice to withdraw yourself from that conversation because you've never been held accountable for that perspective. No one's ever called you out about it. That is what is happening, ladies and gentlemen, on college and university campuses. People are finally standing up and using their free speech. Therefore, I urge you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Sean Harper. And that concludes our closing statements. The results are in. We have the final results. Our motion is this. Free speech is threatened on campus. We've had you vote twice, once uh, before you heard the arguments and once again after you heard the arguments. And the team whose numbers have moved the most between the two votes in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Let's look at the first vote. On the motion, free speech is threatened on campus before the vote. 49% agreed with this motion. 27% were against. 24% were undecided. In the second vote, in the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their vote went from 49% to 66%. They picked up 17 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 25%. They went down two percentage points. That means the team arguing for the motion, free speech is threatened on campus, are our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. This debate was sponsored in part by the Adam Smith Society, a project of the Manhattan Institute, and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Van Greenfield, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.